And let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Hebrews together. Come to chapter 3. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them, get their attention. We'd like everyone not only to hear the Word of God, but also to read it and uh, makes double the impact upon our lives. And, and then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, quoting Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry those forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage in your word. Thank you for all that is intended to accomplish in our hearts this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the seriousness of the passage. And, Lord, we just embrace it, the strength of the passage and the strength of the message, because we don't want to do anything that dishonors Jesus and anything that displeases you. So we pray that you'd speak to us this morning through this chapter personally individually in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to a group of Hebrew Christians who were admittedly in very, very difficult circumstances. And the writer never minimizes that at all. They were walking with the Lord and serving the Lord at a time, one of the hardest times to do so in the history of the church. It was at a time in which, in terms of secular governments and persecution and all, was a time of the persecution of a Roman Caesar by the name of Nero against all Christians in the Roman Empire. And his Persecution was a murderous persecution. And these Jewish Christians were not only facing all of that, even as their 
uh, Gentile brethren were facing that. But on top of that, they were also facing estrangement from their Jewish family and their Jewish friends as a result of having become Christians. It had affected in a strong way, adversely so, the relationship with so many. And the temptation that they were facing was that they were, as a result of these things, toying with the idea of abandoning their Christian faith, not for biblical reasons, not for rational reasons, but for emotional reasons as a way of escaping the persecution that they were in the middle of and a way of escaping the rejection that they were experiencing as Christians. And the writer of the book of Hebrews responds very decisively to this temptation that they were contemplating with three very great strong words in this chapter. And the first word is the word consider in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And the second word is the word beware in verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And the third word is found in verse 13, the word exhort, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And we will make these three great words the foundation of our study of this passage this morning. He calls them, first of all, to consider in verses 1 through 6. To consider what? To consider the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. So here they are. They're about to make this very, very rash decision, emotional decision concerning the most important thing in life, and that is what a person is going to do with Jesus. And he just tries to get them to slow down and to think about what it is that they're doing and what are the implications if they follow through on what they're being tempted to do if they were to actually do it. And so he tells them to consider, in essence, Jesus, which is the point of the entire letter. And and now he calls upon them to consider Jesus in contrast to Moses. So he's talked about Jesus' superior, superiority to the Old Testament prophets, the superiority of Jesus to angels. Now he's going to head into Moses, and he's going to go into the priesthood, and he's going to go into, um, <clears throat> not today, but into the furnishings of the tabernacle and so forth. And we think to ourselves, why does he feel that it's so important to speak to these Jewish Christians about the superiority of Jesus related to Moses. And the reason is, is because these Jewish Christians are being tempted to abandon Christ and salvation, the salvation that's found only in Him, in order to return to an incorrect understanding of the law given to Moses by God. These Jewish Christians are living not long after the time of Jesus' ministry in the world. And so the same religious leaders and the same religious systems that were butting heads with Jesus continually in his ministry, they are still the dominant force in Judaism at that time. There's nothing wrong with Judaism. There's nothing wrong, was nothing wrong with the law and the prophets as God had given those writings to the Jewish people for the whole world. The problem is that these Jewish religious leaders took the commandments of Moses, the 613 commandments that are contained in the law of Moses, 10 of which are the 10 commandments, and rather than using them and understanding them for the purpose for which God had given them, they decided that God had given these 613 commandments for the purpose of keeping those commandments as a means of establishing a righteousness that would be acceptable to God and gain the entrance into heaven. So that's how they interpreted the law of Moses, was that God gave these commandments 
We keep these commandments, and then that gives us a rightness, a right onness, a righteousness that makes us acceptable for heaven. And so these Jewish Christians are being tempted to abandon salvation on the basis of faith in Christ, and now to return to the idea of earning their salvation on the basis of some kind of works or religious activity. The writer explains to them and explains to us that this is really a bad move in light of the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses and that uh, anywhere you want to look in life, when you leave the greater for something lesser, that's a really bad decision. It is especially bad when you are leaving Jesus for something lesser and you are leaving a finished and a completed salvation for what is no salvation at all. And so the first thing that he he wants them to do in order to head off this decision that they're making is he wants us to know that Moses was a good man, he was a faithful servant, verse 2, of God, and that he had been faithful to what God had called him to do. In bringing forth the superiority of Jesus to Moses, he is not putting Moses down in any way. You don't have to put any human being down in order to exalt Christ. And so Moses, he tells us, there's nothing wrong with Moses. Moses was a faithful servant. No doubt about it, we praise the Lord for Moses. He tells us in verse 2 that Moses was faithful in all of his, that is, in God's house. That is, Moses had been faithful to all that God had called him to be among God's people, among God's family. Well, then, how is it that Jesus is greater than Moses. And he tells us in verses 3 through 6, Jesus is greater than Moses in that he is worthy of more glory than Moses, as he tells us in verses 3 and 4. In the same way, he says, that the one who builds a house is greater than the house. And Moses had built a tabernacle for God. He had built a tent. It was a meeting place, the tabernacle of meeting, a place for God's people to meet with God and, and in the Old Testament. And God had given Moses very specific instructions on how that tabernacle was to be built. Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, God said, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And God was wanted Moses to follow the pattern that he gave him for the building of the tabernacle because the tabernacle was a model of heaven. And as, he, as the writer of Hebrews is going to bring out in chapter 9, verse 24, whenever we get there, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So that tabernacle was a model of heaven, and God called on Moses to build it. Moses built the model, but the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus created the heavens. He created all things. He created the heavens from which the tabernacle was modeled. Now, when I was a boy, I, I liked to build models. And, uh, and sometimes we'd have to put our pennies and our nickels and our dimes and our quarters together to buy a model. But they didn't cost much in those days. But a penny meant something in those days. And, and so... Every once in a while, I'd scrape enough money to buy maybe a Sherman tank and build that model, or maybe uh, a model of PT-109, the boat that 
President Kennedy was on as a part of his military service or maybe a jet plane or something like that. And so I love to, to build uh, models and, and these little plastic things of, that are replicas of the, the real thing. And, and like Moses, you get those models and you, there's a very, very complete set of instructions inside of those models. So it was wonderful to do that. So I would build my model, and there I'd have a model of a Sherman tank in front of me. Well, it's one thing to have a model of a Sherman tank. It's another thing to own a Sherman tank. It's one thing to build a model of a Sherman tank. It's another thing to build a Sherman tank. It's one thing to build a model of an F-16. It's an altogether different quality of person who is able to build an F-16 engineer it and to build it. They're two entirely different things. And the one who's able to design that and put that together, the real thing as opposed to the model, that's a, that is a very, very superior person. Moses built the model, the model of the heavenly scene. It was good because God called him to do that, but the one who can actually create heaven the thing that it was modeled after, that's someone who is infinitely superior in every way. In Jesus is that someone. So the difference is in what each of them had been called to do. Each of them were faithful, both Moses and Jesus, to what the Father had called them to do. But what they had been called to do and Jesus had been called to do was something very much superior to what God had called Moses to do. And so that brings us back to the great word of the book of Hebrews, and that is the word better. What Moses did was great. It's just that what Jesus has done is better, much better. Jesus is greater than Moses, he tells us in verse 4, on the basis of his accomplishments. Again, stating kind of the same case. Number three, Jesus is greater than Moses on the basis of his position with God, as he brings out in verses 5 and 6. Moses was a faithful servant of God, but Jesus, the writer reminds them, is the very Son of God. In other words, Moses was being faithful to what God had called him to be as a servant among God's people, but Jesus is greater and that he was, he was faithful to the far greater calling as the Son of God. That is to die on the cross for our sins as a lamb without spot and without blemish in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, with salvation, the confidence of heaven after this life is done, Moses couldn't even remotely make a claim like that related to his life and his ministry as wonderful as he was as a person and as faithful as he had been to what God had called him to do. And so, though both Moses and Jesus were faithful to God, he's trying to get them to see that there's no comparison between Moses and Jesus in terms of what the Father had called each of them to do. Moses, God, Jesus did a far greater work. If you will go to one of the hospital grounds here in the city, and you go on the grounds and you see an employee of the hospital uh, keeping up the grounds, a landscaper. And as you look at the grounds, they're absolutely immaculate. And that groundskeeper is just doing a fabulous job. He's, he deserves credit for being faithful. But if you have a brain surgeon or you have a heart surgeon who is an employee of that same hospital and he is then faithful to what he is called to do, you give great honor to both of them for their faithfulness, but the responsibility and the calling of a brain surgeon or a heart surgeon is way greater than that of, of a gardener. One is doing a far greater work, and in the same way Moses was called to serve God by serving his people, he was faithful to it, but it does not compare to what Jesus was called to do and was faithful to do as the very Son of God. It was Jesus alone, he reminds them in verse 1, 
that made them holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling. Not Moses or the keeping of the law of Moses. Jesus did that for them. Now, again, at the time of Jesus' incarnation, the Jewish religious leaders had uh, uh, hijacked uh, Judaism away from what God intended it to be and, and in fact, not only moved it away from what God intended the law and the prophets to be, but they made it into the exact opposite of what God intended the law to accomplish in people's lives. Again, they were teaching that if you keep these 613 commandments, then we can establish our own righteousness before God, be accepted by God, and earn our uh, entrance uh, into heaven. The problem with that and the problem with their interpretation of the law, and there's a lot of problems with that, one of which the Holy Spirit brings out in Romans chapter 4, and that is the great father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, was declared righteous or justified in the sight of God on the basis of faith in the book of Genesis. 450 years before the law ever came into existence. So how do you have a person declared righteous before God on the basis of faith 450 years before the law if the purpose of the law is to make us righteous in the eyes of God on the basis of keeping that law? Then God gave Moses the law 450 years too late for Abraham. But that's not what happened. It's interesting, too, that what he brings out here in terms of the error of this kind of an interpretation that we can keep the law in order to earn our way into heaven, the one super glaring problem with that interpretation is no one can keep the law. The Ten Commandments are just ten commandments in the 613. And no one can keep the ten commandments to save their life in order to not only gain everlasting life, but then to receive it and hold on to it. Nobody has ever kept the law of Moses except for Jesus. And Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the grand poobahs of the Jewish religious community, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness or the self-righteousness, so to speak, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to put yourself in that audience. When they heard Jesus say that, The one guy looks to the guy on his right and the other guy looks to the guy on his left and they look and they said, did you just hear the door to heaven slam shut on all of us? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious pros. They gave their whole life to the keeping of the law of Moses, all 613 commandments, with the idea that if we keep them, we'll be accepted by God. And when God says, you can't get into heaven unless you have a righteousness that exceeds their righteousness, Jesus was saying, they can't keep the law of Moses. Even the most disciplined, the most determined, the most sober, the most serious religious person, no one can keep the law of Moses. So how can it be used as a basis for establishing a righteousness for heaven? And so that what Jesus was communicating that. Well, what in the world, we ask ourselves, is to be the Christian's understanding of the law of Moses. Well, first of all, we're not to view the law of Moses as some terrible thing. It isn't. The law of Moses is a wonderful thing. Jesus himself said, again in that same Sermon on the Mount, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Paul wrote of the law 
and to Timothy, and he said, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul wrote to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 21. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So the second thing we need to understand as Christians is that is that the law, that though the law is good, it is only good for what God has intended it to be. And so it's important for us to understand what is the intent or the purpose of the law and God giving of the law, if not for obeying to make ourselves acceptable to enter into heaven. And again, as the Jewish religious leaders had falsely turned it uh, into. The Holy Spirit declared through Paul of the purpose of the law in Galatians chapter 3. He said, what, is, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, that is the Messiah, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. Again, I repeat a verse quoted earlier. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. One of the purposes of the law of Moses is to expose every single one of us as sinners. Every single one of us is being less than perfect. And because of that, unacceptable for heaven. That's what the law of Moses does. You take those 613 commandments of God and you lay them out and you take any life that's ever been born in human history, apart from the life of Christ, you lay any human life alongside of those 613 commandments and those commandments are going to expose that life as being crooked. You go to a lumber yard. And maybe you're looking for a redwood two-by-four, and you find one that's just absolutely true, absolutely straight. And then you spend the rest of the afternoon sifting through the whole pile to find another one just like it. And you grab this piece of lumber, and you put, ooh, boy, is that crooked. And you get it, ooh, is that, oh, this one looks pretty straight. You get it there, wow, that's a, that looks straight over here, but that, uh, you put it up against the measure, that's really crooked. I mean, that's all bowed out. Reminds me of a guy I knew in high school, but boy, could he run with a football. But, so, that's what the law did. You take any human life, and you put it against the standard of that law, and it reveals all of us to be crooked. It reveals all of us to be sinners. And, and that's what it does, as Paul wrote to the Romans, and he said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So why in the world is that important? Why did God have to establish a law that it would expose me as a sinner? Because until I realize that I am a sinner, then I'm not going to be looking for a Savior. But once I realize that my life is bent, my life is crooked, and that something straight is required in order to enter into heaven, then I realize that, uh, that, that I need a, 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 a Savior and I need a, a salvation. And so that's what the, the law does. It reveals our need for a Savior. It exposes us as sinners. And that's why the law is likened to a tutor or a schoolmaster by Paul. And a schoolmaster is someone who teaches someone something. And the law of Moses teaches us something. And what it teaches us is that we're a sinner. And all day, 
every day, all night, every night. It just blinks like a blinking neon light. You are a sinner, you are a sinner, you are a sinner, you are bent, you are crooked, and you are in need of a Savior. You need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. So that in exposing us as sinners, we would never look at the law of Moses as a way of salvation, but to realize I've now got to find a Savior who can make me acceptable for heaven. And that's what the law of Moses was given in order to do. And then the Holy Spirit is faithful to lead us to Christ, to then um, qualify us uh, for heaven. And so the law was given to keep us from ever fooling ourselves into thinking that we can make ourselves acceptable to God by our own effort. And it forces me to look for a right standing before God based upon something other than the law of Moses. And so it pushes us to a faith in Christ. And once a person becomes a Christian, the law has done its job. It's done its job. There's no need to return back under the law. And Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the reason that putting my faith in Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord is the end of the law for righteousness is because when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the perfect righteousness, the righteousness of the one who kept the law of Moses, the righteousness of Christ is put to our account. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, and he said, But to him who does not work but believes on him, Jesus, who justifies the godly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul wrote in his second epistle to the Corinthians, he said, For he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's a wonderful thing to realize as a Christian that when God looks at me, he does not see my unrighteousness. When he looks at me, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been put to my account because of faith. And what is true of me is true of every Christian. And the Bible teaches that very clearly that any attempt to establish my own righteousness before God on the basis of works, even religious works, that that some, when a person does that, that that person is ignorant of one great fact. And the great fact that that person is ignorant of is that the righteousness that is required for heaven is perfection. And once we realize that perfection is what is required in order to enter into heaven, every single one of us realizes we have already blown that. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us is a sinner. We are already disqualified. Even if we were to live a perfect life from this moment forward, we have already disqualified ourselves from ever entering into heaven on the basis of our own good works because we're sinners and, and we, we do not have a righteousness that is acceptable for that heavenly scene. And so when we realize that perfection is the standard, then the search is, all right, wh- who and what is the Savior to save me from the consequences of my sin? And again, that leads us to Christ. And this is why God has made salvation a free gift rather than of works because we can't do enough works or do enough good works to earn our way into heaven. It had to be a free gift. And when we put our faith in Christ, the righteousness of Jesus is put to our account. And now we have what Jesus said we would need, and that is a righteousness that exceeds the most religious person in the world. It exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Holy Spirit declared, again in Galatians 
chapter 3, verse 21. I repeat the verse for a third time because it's so central to what we're looking at. But Paul wrote, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law, the law of Moses. In other words, he's saying that there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. What's wrong is that we can't keep the law of Moses. If there was a law that could be, that could get us into heaven if we had a way of keeping it, the law of Moses was that law. But we can't keep it. And in other words, if the law of Moses is not the basis by which we can work our way into heaven, how much less any man-made law that somebody has come up with on a way to enter into heaven. And so the example is this. You know, the latest data, they always do this every year. How many of Americans, how many... Uh, believe in God? How many believe in heaven, literal heaven and hell? How many believe you're going to heaven? How many believe this and that? And they do all of the, the stuff and, and the survey. Well, the latest one for 2012 shows us that our country is still a very religious country. I won't say it's a Christian country, but it's a religious country. Eighty percent of Americans believe they're on their way to heaven. So then they ask the next question, uh, on what basis do you believe you are on your way to heaven? And over half of the people that responded, just about half of the people that responded to that, responded with some variation of by being a good person or by doing a little more good in life than bad in life. Now, that's a response to a question that's been asked, but that's their law. They believe that if I keep this law, if I just am basically a good person or I do a little bit more that's good than bad, that that law will get me into heaven. And the problem is, is that that law won't get us into heaven. If the law of Moses can't get us into heaven, no law that we can come up with can get us into heaven. And this is what God, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is trying to get them to see and us to see, is that when a person, you ask somebody, and this may be you, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings needlessly, but somebody comes up to you and says, are you on your way to heaven? You're not yet a Christian. They ask you, are you on your way to heaven? You say, yes, I'm on my way to heaven. They ask you why, and you say, I'm on my way to heaven because I'm a good person. And, and the idea is that it, it, that whole belief about heaven, about salvation, about how to get into heaven is so much lower than the standard of, of the law of Moses as to be laughable. So if the law of Moses could not qualify us for heaven, no other law, other law can qualify us for heaven. And it's a terrible self-deception to believe that I can earn my way into heaven. You say, why do you spend so much time on this and why do we address it somewhat regularly? Because it's in the Bible an awful lot and because for all of our progress and in a country that's supposed to be a Christian country with Christian roots, Judeo-Christian ethic, all of these things, well over half of the population still don't understand that we can't get to heaven on the basis of our own effort, on the basis of any law, not our own law or even the law of Moses. And then he says the second word, beware, and I want to uh, infuse hope at this moment. My final two points are much shorter. In verses 7 through 19 here, he uses the word beware, and, and he uses it in warning them that to leave Christ in order to return to the law of Moses as a means of self-righteousness would be a, a, a worse decision than one of the worst decisions in the history of God's people in all of the Bible. 
And that is when the children of Israel were called by God at Kadesh Barnea, Numbers chapter 13, to enter into the promised land. They sent the 12 spies in to spy out the land. Joshua and Caleb came back. Two of the spies said, it's great. It's everything God said it is. Let's go in and conquer the land. The other 10 spies said, no, we're going to get crushed like bugs. These are giants in the land. We're not going to do it. And not only did they rebel against God's truth and God's instruction to promise to go into the land, they further said, we are going back to Egypt. We're going to jettison God's purposes, His plans. We're going to go back into Egypt. And Egypt is represents the world in the Bible. We're going to go back to when things were easier and things were more comfortable, not as difficult as they are right now. And that was the threat that they made. And as a result of that rebellion against God, that generation spent the next 40 years on a death march through the wilderness that was ultimately marked by 600,000-plus graves. And God declared in Numbers chapter 14 of that ancient rebellion by the children of Israel, He said, but truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. And only Joshua and Caleb entered into the promised land 40 years later. And God is warning these Hebrew Christians that they are about to make a far worse decision and commit a far greater rebellion if they leave Christ for anything. Verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And it's talking about an apostasy. To leave Christ and to go back to go to a works-based religion, to leave Christ and go back into the world. It dishonors Christ and it fills the Father as he reveals to us here with wrath. And the children of Israel at the time of that rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, they knew better than to do what they were doing. They'd seen the ten plagues that God had poured out on Egypt in order to secure their redemption or their release from Egypt. They had seen the the Red Sea parted in order for them to cross over on dry ground. It was unbelievable, the history with God that they had. And yet they hid a place in their life just like these Hebrew Christians, where now it's really hard to walk with God. It's really hard to be faithful to Him in this situation. We're paying a very large, heavy price in order to be faithful to the Lord. And finally, they hit that price that they deem to be too great. And they say, we're going to leave Christ and we're going to leave God and we're going to go back to our old way of life. And they knew better than to make uh, that decision, both at time of Kadesh Barnea And these believers knew better also. The reason they wanted to leave Christ was they wanted to secure an easier life, less hassles, less troubles, less rejection. And so they're thinking about abandoning their faith in Christ. And and they knew better than uh, to do that. And it's more dishonoring for a child of God to abandon Jesus than for a Christian to never have trusted in him at all, or an unbeliever to have never trusted in Christ at all. At least the one doesn't understand, hasn't partaken. To be a Christian and to have experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 
the witness of the Holy Spirit in praise and worship to the Lord, the miracle of what He makes our lives into. All of these things are privileges that make us responsible. And no unbeliever understands any of those things, but those are a part of our history. And so it's a big thing to have a history with God and then one day to throw that away because I want to settle into a life that is a little bit easier and a little bit more comfortable and involves a little less rejection than the Christian life. And thus he tells us in verse 13, we need to exhort one another related to this daily. And he makes a big deal of the fact that today we need to do it. He mentions it again down in verse 15. Today, what's the point that he's making? He's making the point that today is what matters for them. And today is what matters for us in terms of whether we're going to walk with the Lord or not. I've walked with the Lord since 1980. There's a lot of yesterday in my life between me and God. But if I become an apostate today, if I walk away from God today, all of that is a loss. Every day we decide as Christians that we are going to walk faithfully with the Lord. And every day, if we find ourselves in these temptations, and most Christians will sooner or later, every day we have to decide, no, I am not going to walk away from the Lord for anything. And so there's this need to exhort one another to remain faithful to the Lord, and we're to exhort one another, especially when we're going through seasons of great difficulty. And it's not just the preachers and the pastors and the elders and the deacons that are supposed to do this. This is a body-wide thing. All of us are to do this. Where someone hits a difficult time in their Christian life, they may begin to buckle a little bit, and we come alongside them, And as they're beginning to waver just a little bit, we remind them that as hard as the Christian life is, and it can be very hard in this fallen world, there is something harder, and that is to walk in this world apart from Christ. And so the exhortation, there is something harder than obeying God, and, and being in His will, and that is to be outside of His will, and time will always prove that to be true. He talks about the deceitfulness of sin, and I love the phrase, and basically it just tells us that sin lies. Do you, do you realize that sin communicates? And sin's a liar. And so it speaks lies to us. And one of the lies that sin tells us is that there's a better life than the one that we have as a Christian out there. And when we're in danger of falling for that lie, we need someone to come and tell us the truth and to exhort us to be faithful to the Lord. We don't abandon Christ for nothing. We don't abandon Christ for any. Thing. We live in a country and we live in a Christianity that's all around us where so many people backslide, so many people become apostates. And it's just, you hear about how so-and-so doing it, well, they're back in the world and doing this, and everybody just shrugs their shoulders and goes, it's so common. It shouldn't be common. It's a big deal to leave Christ. It's a big deal to know what we know, to have the history that we have, to have Him have invested in our life the way that He is invested in our life. It is a tragedy when one Christian falls away from God and it dishonors God before the whole world. We don't just casually come in and out of this Christian life and this relationship. We stay faithful to Christ till the day we die. The power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's telling you don't leave Christ. Not even for the law of Moses do you leave Christ. We are not to leave Christ. We are not to abandon Him. 
under any circumstances, and we need to hear the message. It doesn't matter how sloppy Christianity has become around us and the commitment of Christianity around us. We can't speak for them, and I don't speak for them or speak to them at this moment. We can only speak for ourselves and allow chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews to raise the standard very high in our lives. That what we began with Christ, we finish with Christ. And everything else is unacceptable. We do not leave Him for anything under any circumstances. This is a great God that we serve. This is a great King that we serve. This isn't somebody just down the street or something that's made up in people's minds or some mere human being. This is the God of the universe that sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sins. And we are not to casually dishonor Him the way that He is so casually dishonored by so many And we're all capable of it. But the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to keep the standard high that never enters our thinking. And if it enters our thinking, then some sane thinking Christian comes alongside of us and says, Don't you do that. I exhort you. Do not do what you're thinking. And we need to hear that voice. And I'm speaking that voice right now as it relates to our lives in obedience to the passage. Exhort one another, another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And we need to exhort one another so that we don't even take a half step back in our Christian life, because it's a dangerous thing to do, because it never stops with a half step. You take an apostate from Christ. They have a history with God. God's done great things in their lives, made a miracle of them. Then one day in their life, It gets harder than they want it to be. They lose one friend too many for being faithful to the Lord. There's some sin out there that they still want to explore that the book tells them they can't explore or make a part of their life. There's something of Egypt out there that they still want. Some selfishism, some sin... Some selfishness. And so they leave Christ for it. And the scary thing of the self-deception, you talk to them five years later, ten years later, twenty years later, and you say, why did you leave Christ? And sin will have so lied to them for so long that they believe the lie. And their answer will be, It was just a phase in my life, just a fad. I'm too intellectual now for Christianity. I'm too mature and well-rounded a person now to ever believe in Christianity and the narrowness of Christianity in so many respects. And they've convinced themselves that those are the reasons that they left Christ And they never left Christ for those reasons. They left for Egypt. They left for sin. Never because something was wrong with Christ. They left for some selfish, self-ism motive. And yet they've convinced themselves that they left for some other reason and end up believing their own lies. The beautiful thing about it is that churches all over this community and all over this world will have those kind of people back in their midst. 
or some miracle of God where God has spoken to them and said, listen, you revised history. You've convinced yourself it was this, that there was something wrong with Christ. You left because something was wrong with you. And you know it. And then that person in the clarity of the voice of the Holy Spirit realizes that's exactly true and what happened. And when there's that kind of clarity, then they come back into an environment like this, praise the Lord for it, in order to see if there's a place that they can come back to the Lord and restore that relationship that they once had with the Lord. They come back to what they knew was true so long ago. Jesus was never, he never kept it a secret what was required in order to follow him. Never. He never apologized for the hardness of the things that he said would be required of us in order to follow him. And the reason he never apologized for it is because he knows that for all of the rejection and the difficulty and the persecution that we may face in following him, there's an abundant life that is found in this life in following him that is known nowhere else. And then there is an everlasting life in heaven that waits us in the life to come. Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. That's the deal. He did not mumble. He didn't say something positive over here, you know, something Norman Vincent Peelish over here, and then say, and the disciples said, did he just say something? Yeah, I think he said something hard, but he didn't want us to hear it. He was very clear. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so, as Christians, we exhort one another, we do not go back to our former life for any reason, whether that former life is a religious former life that withdraws from Christ or a secular former life that would pull us away from Christ. Jesus is always better than anything. We are being tempted to leave him to return to. And so this morning the exhortation to the apostate, the exhortation to the backslider. And is there any hope in that kind of a situation? There is. It's called repentance to have a change of mind that produces a change of direction. And what does Jeremiah say about that? If we find ourselves in that place today, God spoke and he said, return you backsliding children and I'll heal you backsliding. He will take even that season in your life and work it together for good in conforming you into the image of Christ. There's always hope as long as we draw a breath. But this passage is intended to speak very, very strongly to Christians down through the age. It is a big deal to be called a Christian. It is a big deal to be his workmanship. And we don't leave him for anybody or anything. Let's stand together and we'll pray. We praise you, Lord, for the strength of the passage and the strength of of the warning. And we pray, Lord, that it would raise the bar of commitment to you to its highest level in all of our hearts today. And we pray, Lord, specifically for those that entered this room today 
having taken a half step back already, or the circumstances of life have become so difficult that they're considering the same thing that these Jewish Christians were considering. And we pray, Lord, that your voice has been simple and that it's been clear to their heart in rescuing them from the danger that they were putting themselves into. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you, of being saved, of being strangers and pilgrims in this world, of heaven being our home, of being your workmanship. We love the people that you're making us into, Lord. And we want you to know we count it a privilege to know you and to walk with you. And our deepest desire is to bring you pleasure personally through our lives and then to bring you honor and glory through our lives in this world. And we pray that the place that this chapter has in all of that would do its full part. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.